2: Matt Goudreau.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 426 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, singer, songwriter, and media composer Pete Droge, who's based out of Vashon Island, Washington. Pete is well-known as a solo artist, but he's also known as a producer, having worked with Stone Gossard of Pearl Jam, Chris Ballew of the Presidents of the United States of America. Pete also co-wrote and performed the title track for the Miramax film Beautiful Girls with Eurythmics' Dave Stewart. He's also produced engineered and mixed national broadcast ads for Toyota, State Farm, and many others. And on top of all of that, he's also composed, produced, engineered, and mixed scores for three feature films and several shorts, including Sam Jones's Miles to Go Before I Sleep for Showtime, film and TV placements including Dumb and Dumber, Zombieland, Grey's Anatomy, Nashville, and many more. And some of you will know Pete from his work with Matthew Sweet and Sean Mullins in the band The Thorns. Suffice it to say, Pete has been around the block musically and recording-wise for quite some time. And we actually connected many years ago because he was a listener. And I can't remember what the cause was, but we ended up on the phone together. And I knew of him through a mutual friend. So we started talking over the years and have stayed in touch loosely, and I asked him to come on the show long ago, and he really wasn't uh, at a point where he was ready for that, but he recently called me and said, I think I'm ready. And I, of course, was all too ready to have him on. So very happy to have Pete with us today, and I look forward to having you hear that conversation. So Pete Droge, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. (laughs) Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about automation. I can't remember if I've talked about this with you all or not, but I'm gonna talk about it right now because it's what is on my brain. So here we go. Automation in terms of your digital life can greatly uh, save you a lot of time. So I'll give you an example. Very simple, the guest suggestion form that you all fill out to suggest guests for this show, that's all automated, right? You go to workingclassaudio.com, you know, you go to the guest suggestion form, you fill it out, you submit it, boom. That sends us a notification so that I know that somebody has a guest suggestion and I can log in and see what that is. That's the most, like, simple way of doing that. As opposed to people emailing me, which they still do, and I redirect them to the to the form because it's the way I keep track of it. So that's the simple thing. I use a thing called Typeform for that. You can also use Typeform and other things to put together a very complex set of tasks to collect data, to give people quotes, to get guest suggestions. When it's confirmed a guest is gonna come on, this is what happens. I send them an email and that email contains a video that I've recorded on Loom, L-O-O-M. They watch the video. At the end of the video, it takes them to Calendly, which is a scheduling thing. That's another piece of automation out there. They find a date that works for them. They pick a time, they book it, and then that takes them to a type form, form, and they fill that out. And then we get a notification that they've done all that. And we have them scheduled. The form takes them through a series of questions and gets them to upload their pictures that we use for the promotion. It's a really great thing. So... The automation thing is something that Mark Abrams from Puremix has been my mentor on. He is a badass when it comes to automation. You know, and in fact, maybe I have talked about this before, <laughs> because I know that, uh, I, I think I've mentioned this before, Mark uses a, a very complex automation system for Andrew Talks to Awesome People, for Andrew Sheps' thing, right? So they save a lot of time and a lot of back and forth with automation, and the thing is, is that some of these things like Typeform can automatically talk to other applications, but in, in, in some cases where you need something a little more complex, there's this piece of software out there that I think a lot of you have heard about called Zapier, Zapier or Zapier, and I think you say Zapier. So let's say Zapier. Zapier can say, uh, it can connect Typeform to Google Sheets, to Gmail, to all kinds of apps, uh, MailChimp, whatever. Tons and tons and tons of software out there. So you get two different applications speaking to each other through this uh, liaison, which is Zapier in this case, and it really can help you set up this very complex and fascinating world of automating stuff. You can use it for a number of things. It's really just up to the imagination. So I know that automation and AI and all that is like the hot topic right now. People are talking about that a lot. This, This is just basically you directing these pieces of software uh, to do certain things. You program it, you get it to do what you need and gather the information that you need. So if you're a studio owner, uh, this could be a great way to onboard clients. Uh, If you're a freelance mix mastering person, it could be a great way to automate that process, get people to input the song name, how many tracks it is and you could create like a pricing thing for them, a pricing menu if you wanted and spit out a quote at the end. If you want to see a fantastic example of how this works, Brian Lucy, mastering engineer, go over to Brian's website, Magic Garden Mastering. Yeah, I think that's it, let's check. Yeah, Magic Garden Mastering. Brian has a fantastic form that you fill out and it spits out a quote. So if you wanna know what it's gonna cost for him to master six songs, fill out the form, submit, you get an email back, tells you the quote and then says, you know, do you want to start this project and then it starts you on a whole nother journey. So that's a really great example if you want to see something something great there. Brian's going to get an up, uptick in traffic after this, I'm sure. Uh, I got to have Brian on the show at some point, I realize. Anyways, the the automation thing can be a very powerful tool. It's it can get really complex too. So start simple if you if you want to check it out. Uh, I'll include a link in the show notes to Typeform. I love it. It's really really been great. Now some of these things you know they'll cost you a few hundred bucks a year to use. So you know if there's a free tier and you want to try it out there that's cool. But if you know that you're going to do something larger with it just pay the money. Dig in. Start experimenting and and doing that. Uh, But once again they all cost money. So you know Typeform and Zapier and all this stuff adds up. So Plan your plan your automations uh, accordingly, carefully. And uh, but here's the other thing too, is that when you do it, you could have an uptick in business. Many possibilities with automation. So check it out. I'll put uh, link links will be in the show notes for Zapier and Typeform and anything else I can think of. So head on over to WorkingClassAudio.com and check that out. And uh, I hope you can automate some of these tasks, and it will improve your your audio business. That's my rat. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of Pro Audio. You m- might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. A number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the US, and I just love that whole thing. So, if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out, hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to WorkingClassAudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me, and we can sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Pete Droge here on the working class audio podcast. Pete, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: It's a true pleasure to have you on. As we were just kind of talking before we were rolling, I was trying to explain, you know, like how I first heard your name, which was from our mutual friend, who I actually haven't talked with in years except on social media, is Jeff Trot, who's originally in the San Francisco band Wire Train. Jeff had mentioned you and that's that's the first time the name Pete Droge came across my ears
2: and that would have been probably early mid-90s something like that right
1: I think you have a better sense of the time than I do I just remember Jeff talking about you but essentially you were starting a solo career let's get into that but let's go back as I typically do let's start with where you grew up
2: I grew up Minneapolis Minnesota till I was four years old And that's when I first started playing with tape machines. I had a little cassette machine. Remember the ones that had the handle that pulled out and you could carry it around, a built-in speaker? Yeah. Had one of those and that was like my favorite toy. And I used to bang on a ukulele and make up little songs and record it into that. Moved to Southern Illinois after that for a couple of years and then South Dakota. That's when piano lessons started in about the second grade. And then ended up on Bainbridge Island, Washington, which is just a ferry boat ride from Seattle when I was eight in 1977. And I continued piano lessons and then got into the guitar in around, I guess, around sixth grade. I'd gotten a guitar when I was much younger for Christmas, a little Sears and Roebuck guitar. Mm -hmm. It's called the Lark. But I never really got into it until about, I think, sixth grade is when it really, I got bit with the bug for guitar and started playing my little nylon string acoustic guitar along with ACDC records. And then in eighth grade, ended up starting to take guitar lessons. Ended up playing in the jazz band in high school. My first proper band was called March of Crimes. <laughs> so that earned me my, my footnote in rock history because of that band, for a moment, I was in it with Ben Shepard from Soundgarden. Oh, wow. So I was in it before Ben joined, and then we overlapped for a minute. And the singer was a guy named Jonathan Evison who's gone on to be a New York Times bestselling author. And uh, Stone Gossard from Pearl Jam wanted to be in the band for a minute. And there's sort of some debate whether he was in the band or whether he just wanted to be in the band. According to Wikipedia, he was in the band, but I'm not sure that he actually was. <laughs> so that was a full-on straight-ahead punk rock band. That would have been my freshman year of high school, I think. So that would have been around 83. So the Seattle punk scene was pretty pretty happening at that time.
1: Let me ask, the moving around in the early days of being a kid, was that because of divorced parents, or was that because of military parents, or what? why was that?
2: My dad worked with group homes with juvenile delinquents oh. and so he would basically start a group home, get it up and running and then move on to another town and start another one and get it up and running. So that was the first two moves. And then in South Dakota, he ended up working for the state. And then same thing in, in Washington, worked for the Department of Social Health Services or something like that. Okay. So we were following him, him around for jobs. So before I cut you off, you were talking about the Seattle punk scene. Yeah, so March of Crimes, also of note, the drummer was a guy named Steve Nelson who went on, went on to be in a band called The Accused, which is a pretty important punk rock band around here. We played in Steve Nelson's bedroom. We did one recording, which is Lost, so someday hopefully we'll find that recording. We did a cover of a band called The Farts, a song called Only Heroes Come Home in Boxes, and we had an original song called No Other Way. And that was just full-on straight-ahead punk rock. And I was, at the time, kind of transitioning away from the Harder Edge stuff and getting into Bob Dylan and blues like B.B. King, and ended up quitting that band. And then right after I quit, they started to kind of take off, and they ended up opening for GBH and played a bunch of the really cool clubs in Seattle, and I was super jealous at the time, but... uh, (laughs) You know, ultimately, And John was like one of my best friends and my neighbor, and he'd come back with these amazing stories of playing these shows in the city and stuff. And uh, they went on, their demo tape got into the hands of Jello Biafra, who ended up saying positive things about it in a fanzine. So March of Crimes had a pretty good run. And then my next band was called 25th Hour, and we were just like a straight-ahead garage rock band. Our first show was opening for the legendary band Malfunction, which was uh, Andy Wood from Mother Love Bones, oh, original yeah. band. Yeah, Andy was a fellow Bainbridge Islander. They were a, a Bainbridge band as well. So our first show was opening for Malfunction and The Accused. After that, I kind of got out of the rock thing and was really into like Simon and Garfunkel and Bob Dylan and, and started playing acoustic guitar. And around age 16, that's when I started writing my own songs and kind of doing the, the singer-songwriter thing.
1: Why do you think you were getting away from the harder edge stuff and drifting more towards, you know, the Bob Dylans of the world?
2: I think it's just my vibe. You know, it's just my tempo and my my feel. I'm not that angsty in my heart. You know, I just have more of a I'm drawn to more mellow music, and I think I was drawn to the lyricism, mm. just the production on those records. I wasn't that angsty. I mean, I was angsty because I was a teenager, but musically, I just had a more mellow vein. Where did this progress to? I started writing my own songs. After I got out of high school, I ended up playing some coffee shops on my own and then formed a a group called Strayland Street, which was the name of one of my songs at the time. And then we we reformed that band and called it Ramadillo. And that band was sort of alt-country before anybody used that term, alt-country. Mm-hmm. We did really well in the Seattle bar scene. We played a lot of gigs, stayed really busy, built a pretty good following. But that band was more kind of more high energy, and I started bringing more mellower songs to the fold. And the guys in the band were kind of, you know, oh, people are going to leave the dance floor if you play that slow stuff. And so at that point, I just kind of felt like It was time to really move on and just go the solo route, you know, really embrace the singer songwriter thing, kind of let go of the boot scoot and boogie rock and roll country stuff.
1: Was that intimidating to you to, you know, you'd been in bands and there's always like a support system with the band. And when you're a solo act, it's it's on you.
2: I was pretty fearless about it. There were gigs that I would play, I remember one in particular It was a showcase at a big club called Rock Candy in Seattle, which was sort of one of the main rock clubs in Seattle. And I just get out there in front of this crowd that had just been listening to either heavy Red Hot Chili Peppers style funk or full on grunge. This would have been the early 90s when Seattle was really blowing up. Mm -hmm. And I would just get out there and just fearlessly strum my acoustic guitar and play my tunes. So I think I was just passionate about what I was doing. I believed in what I was doing, and I just got up there and did it.
1: And that's that's hard. When you're the mellow guy following the aggressive band, that audience... It was a
2: juxtaposition, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big contrast, for sure.
1: Were you doing any recording of your tunes on your own at that time? Were you starting to shape what would be your thing sonically then?
2: Well, the first recordings I did, we did a recording of the band 25th Hour. Actually, John Evason, who was the singer in March of Crimes, recorded it. We had just like a little realistic mixer. Mm-hmm. And we did a little tape in our bass player's living room. And then I would play with a boombox in my stereo. So I'd record into the mic on the boombox and I'd play it over the big speakers of the stereo and then overdub it back onto the boombox and back and forth. So that was like my first multi-tracking experience. And when I was 18 or 19, I'd saved up money. I was planning on moving to New York. And one day on a whim, I went to American Music and spent every penny on a cassette 4-track. I bought a Yamaha MT2X cassette 4-track machine. And then that became my total passion. And that's really when I got bit by the recording bug. So I had a little basement set up with my 4-track and would make demos. Some of those demos found their way to my friend Stone Gossard, who at the time was in Mother Love Bone. He passed it on to the, uh, Mother Love Bone's A&R person at Polygram. And I got a demo deal at that time. So that was maybe my second or third studio experience was doing a, a demo deal for Polygram. Before that, i had worked at the same studio. It was called Reciprocal. Mm-hmm. So that's where like Nirvana recorded Bleach and Soundgarden record- recorded their early sub-pop records.
1: And that would have been with uh, with Jack.
2: No, actually, I worked with an engineer called Rich Hinklin. Oh, okay. Who was just the the other house engineer there. It was basically, you'd work with either Jack or Rich. And I think Rich was probably more in the vein of what I was doing at the time, which was rootsier, mellower stuff. Yeah, Rich, I think, did it all. But, you know, Jack was definitely known for the heavy music, and so that wouldn't have been as good a fit for me. So the Polygram demo deal did not result in a deal. I probably should have done, like, Three or four songs or something, but I went ahead and did like a full ten song cassette album at oh, the time. Wow. okay so I, actually that was it was after that that I formed the band Ramadillo and uh, continued to make home demos and really get into my cassette four track stuff. Eventually, another guitar player in Pearl Jam, Mike McCready, put up the money for me to make a demo. So this was after Pearl Jam had gone out and really blown up. He and I were having drinks and dinner. And a show one night, and I was explaining to him how I had some opportunities to make some demos. Some people were offering to put up some money for me to go in the studio, but there were strings attached. They wanted my publishing. And later that night, we were really hammered. and He's like, I'll give you the money to go in the studio. And I, and I said, well, if you feel the same way tomorrow when we're sober, I'll take you up on it. And the next morning he called up and said I was serious and offered me $6,000 to go in the studio. So that was my first real nice studio with a 24-track analog machine Wow. i uh, went to a studio called bear creek which is a really fantastic studio north of seattle in a town called woodenville worked with an engineer there named joe hadlock and we made a demo mike played on it after that demo was done he passed that on to brendan o'brien who was working on pearl jams versus record their second album at the time yeah around that time i also went to south by southwest and played a showcase. And the tape made the rounds around that. That following Monday, I had several offers from major labels after that showcase, one of which was from Brendan O'Brien at American Records. And ultimately, that's where I ended up signing my deal in 93. Wow. Did you end up working with Brendan O'Brien? Yeah, so he signed me to my deal. He had signing power at American Records. Mm -hmm. He produced three solo records for me, two for American, one for Epic. So after, after my second record at American, Brendan had left American and, and started a label at Epic called 57 Records. Mm-hmm. And so he bought me out of my deal there. And then I made my third record for 57 Records in Epic with Brendan. So three, three solo records with Brendan. And then a few years later in 2002, I made a record with Matthew Sweet and Sean Mullins. We had a band called The Thorns. Mm-hmm. And Brendan produced that record. So I've made four records with Brendan. You know,
1: he's not one who does a lot of interviews. So right. can you tell me about, A, what did you learn from him and that experience of, of, of working with him?
2: I learned so much from Brendan. It was interesting. I'd say with each record, I was kind of ready to learn something new. So on the first record, it was really basic stuff like comping. I didn't understand or even know about comping. And uh, there was a story where I was playing a guitar solo on a song called Fourth of July. And I was out there and I was trying to get it. And I was, you know, kept messing up and tried a handful of times. And, you know, I was a young 20-something at the time. I got sort of flustered and upset. And Brenner was like, OK, we're done. You're good. We got it. And I sort of went off in a huff into the lounge of the studio and kind of pouted. And then he comes up a little while later and he goes, come on down, listen to this. And I had assumed, he's an amazing musician, I had assumed that maybe he had gone in and replaced the guitar part and put a solo on himself. Mm. And then he played me a comp of everything that I had just done. And it was this beautiful, wonderfully constructed, composed solo. And it actually had, at the end, it split off into two parts, into this little harmony part on the guitar. And that was just this light bulb, for me, this total light bulb, like, wow, you know, I had no idea that you could piece it together like that. So, you know, simple things like comping, I learned on that first record. And I remember at the time, he's like, everybody does it, Pete. This is how we make records. And I was like, wow, you know, that was crazy to me. (laughs) We'd never even known to do that when I was making these demos before.
1: Now, were you accepting of that or did you push back against that idea?
2: No, I was totally into it. The solo sounded great. I was super happy. Yeah.
1: Some, some people in their early 20s are a little like young, idealistic, and there's a purity and innocence to their their musicianship. And sometimes they push back against those technological things that are part of the, the sausage factory.
2: Yeah, right. I was totally cool with it. The results were great and I was happy. So that's one thing I learned. I think Brendan is known for working really fast. Mm. So he, he really um, keeps musicians on their toes. So learning not to get too in the weeds with worrying about minutiae. He's the kind of guy who, like, if you have an idea, whatever mic is nearby, just throw it up and go. And I think because he was such a strong mix engineer, I think he could really get away with that. He kind of knew that he could capture the essence of something quickly and then make it happen with the mix. I really learned about recognizing a great performance. So when we were cutting takes figuring out which one is, is the one. He was, really had a knack for that. And in those days, of course, we were using razor blades to cut the tape, to mm. put takes together into a master. Yeah, so that, that was sort of some of the lessons on the first record. As I got deeper into engineering, by the second and the third record, I was paying more attention to what he was doing with EQs and compressors. So getting more deep into the weeds of the, the nitty-gritty of the engineering and paying more attention to that and you know, literally writing down settings paying attention to where he was notching out 450 hertz on the kick drum and he was boosting 4.5k a little bit on the kick drum and i was really paying attention to as he would solo things up getting a sense of how they would sound on their own and then listen to how they would sound in the full mix so definitely as i got further along in my path as an engineer i was more into the technical stuff
1: he's one who's worked with a wide variety Of artists, some very mellow, some very aggressive. And you mentioned his musicianship. What was his primary instrument? Wasn't it guitar?
2: Yeah, but he was also a great keyboard player, a great bass player. Okay. And even over the years, he he took up drums too. But
1: being that he's he's not one for getting into the minutia, I assume that he helped you kind of develop a bird's eye view, the thirty thousand foot view of record making of feel good takes etc and and not be caught up in the well is that the right mic or is it you know like is the eq right like all those things that can be kind of dealt with later in the mixing
2: i think we were working at a great studio called southern tracks in atlanta mm. yeah great sounding room mike clark the uh, owner of the studio had an incredible mic collection huge ssl board outboard rack to die for. So I think, you know, when you have all that in your favor, you kind of have to work pretty hard to screw it up when you have as good, as, good of ears as a guy like Brendan has. Mm. So I think probably to a certain extent, he was doing more than I recognized at the time. There's probably more that he was tuning into than, than I was tuning into. There was a lot of focus on drums, for sure. Like, we'd spend some time, not like legendary... 70s, cocaine-fueled, three days on a snare drum <laughs> right. type stuff. But mm. there was a lot of focus on dialing in the drums. He was very clued into the snare drum. Like He'd very much be policing the drummer, especially Dan McCarroll, who played on my second record, was a really hard hitter. So he was constantly policing you know, the tuning of the drum if it was starting to slip, get the drum tuned back up. And more time finessing the sound of the drums And I remember on my first album. We spent some time getting a drum sound Spent a little time getting a bass sound. And then when we got to the guitars, it was super fast. And I can't remember. I think I just watched a video of a studio tour that I shot of my first album, Necktie Second. I think it was a 441 Sennheiser Mm -hmm. and a 57 on the amp. So I went in to get the guitar sound, and it just happened really fast. And I remember being a little disappointed that we didn't spend more time futzing with the guitar sound. But it just sounded great. It's like a, a nice guitar through a nice amp couple good mics, a couple good mic prees, and they knew where to put the mics. So I think with somebody like Brendan, he makes it look easy. And there's probably a lot going on that he's tuned into that I was missing at the time.
1: Yeah. And I wonder if being a guitar player and keyboard player, if he was putting more of his time investment into the drums, because maybe that's, maybe guitar comes naturally to him. So maybe making sure all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted on the drums. You know, I'm speculating, I have no idea. Yeah, but.
2: and you know, drum sounds are just really important. It's just the foundation of a, of a rock record, especially. Getting the phase right, there's a, there's a lot more that can go wrong with a bunch of mics on a drum kit than a couple of mics on an amp.
1: Yeah, truly is. Yeah, it's the DNA of most rock records, the drum sound. Yeah, yeah. Well, so record deals happening... Were you, you know, and this is very working class audio of me to ask you this, but were you making a living? Were you able to survive?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mainly on advances, actually completely on advances now that I think about it. And we, you know, our labels were supportive with tour support. So I was able to pay my band and spring for hotels and eventually things went well enough. Ended up with a hit at radio and a song in a big hit movie And on the soundtrack for that movie, that was Dumb and Dumber. Song called If You Don't Love Me was the lead single for the soundtrack for that album that went gold. So things were going well enough that we graduated to a tour bus and ended up getting some really amazing opportunities as opening acts. We toured with Melissa Etheridge and Sheryl Crow and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. On my second album, we did a Cross Canada tour with Neil Young and Crazy Horse Hmm. and a, a bunch of other bands that we opened for. So, yeah, I was able to make a nice, comfortable living, was able to buy a house that I'm sitting in now. Wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, there's still... uh, Actually, I should put a link in the show notes. There's a video of you playing on David Letterman.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we did Letterman actually a couple times. Did the Jon Stewart show back when he had his own talk show. So that was fun.
1: I'd like to ask you about that time period in terms of, like, I always look back, like, if I knew than what I know now and was more, I think, like accepting of who I was. Cause I think in terms of when you're a musician, there's always the concern, or at least there was for some of the people I'd hang out with, of selling out, doing the wrong thing and making bad decisions. And there's so many people coming in and around you. So sometimes it's hard to know like who to connect with, who can help advance your career and what moves you should make. So where was your head at for that? Because like I say, if I could go back and relive those days and those moments, knowing what I know now, I think I'd kill it. I would be much more on top of taking advantage of every opportunity. Were you taking advantage of those opportunities or did you feel a little lost?
2: I think I was surrounded by good people. I think American records, especially was very artist friendly. So I didn't have a lot of the classic scenarios where the label is really meddling and sort of messing with things. Mm-hmm. Brendan and I were very much left alone, so we were able to kind of make the records we wanted to make. I think I always had enough of a vision of what I wanted to do that I kind of always had my eye on the prize and wasn't really swayed from that. So we definitely shifted towards a more, more of a rock sound. I think part of that was driven by playing big arenas as an opening act. The sound just got sort of more energized and louder. I think part of it was the band that I had formed around me, The Sinners, Mm -hmm. included a great guitar player named Peter Stroud, who a lot of people might know as Sheryl Crow's guitar player for the last 20-odd years, a great bass player named Dave Hull. So I really started kind of writing material for the band, and the band really liked to stretch out. There was a little bit of a jamming element to it. Mm-hmm. And we definitely got louder and more intense. So each each record, Necktie Second was a, a more mellow record on the whole. My second album, Find a Door, was definitely cranked up a bit more. And then my third record, Spacey and Shaken, was really fuzzed out and, and pretty rockin' and bashy. And definitely more of a, a rock record.
1: Do you think, and, and you kind of hinted at it, but do you think that's a result of the venues you were
0: playing?
2: Yeah, I think so. You know, when you're kind of out there in front of 15 or 20,000 people trying to win them over, it was sort of a natural progression just to kind of turn things up and rev it up and get a little bit more high octane with the sound. And, you know, that was something Mm. that was definitely part of my upbringing. I was huge into hard rock as I was growing up as a kid. I was a big ACDC fan and Black Sabbath and loved that stuff. Not that that was the style of rock that I was into. I was more in the sort of Neil Young, Tom Petty kind of vein of rock.
1: But the decision-making in the writing and and the presentation of the music was starting to become geared towards bigger places.
2: Yeah. Yeah, As we were touring that way, even songs that we had recorded in a more mellow fashion on Necktie Second, my first album, we would sort of pump it up for the live version. Mm. There were cases where we would do more of a sort of arena rock version of the song than more the intimate living room version, if that makes sense.
1: And I want to point this out, and I'll put a link in the show notes for the listener. There's a book, David Byrne from The Talking Heads wrote it called How Music is Made, and he really talks about how over the, gener- not generations, but over history, the creation of music was determined by where it was performed, essentially. you know, If it was yeah. performed in churches versus CBGBs, all these different things. And so that's why I'm kind of drawing this out of you. Cause I'm, I'm curious about that. And it seems that you are doing, you are doing exactly that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think being an opening act too, you just, you want to kind of come out and you want to get people's attention. You want to swing for the fences and play to the back row.
1: Yeah, you really do. Try
2: to win them over, get them to notice you.
1: So This is occurring, connections are being made, you're able to buy a house, you're making a living. It's just blooming and blooming and blooming. And then what?
2: Well, the first album did really well. Tons and tons of press. That's when we did Letterman. And things are going really well. That's when we did the Petty tour, which was just a major highlight. We did Three Legs on the Dogs With Wings tour, which was the tour behind the Wildflowers album. So things went really well with that album. The second album didn't do as well. American Records was sort of in a little bit of a free fall at the time. So there was a lot of instability at the label and radio just didn't really embrace any of the tunes on that album. And then I moved over to Epic and that, that record did even less than the second album. So the, the sales trajectory was sort of moving in the wrong direction throughout that period. Mm-hmm. I had a really good contract with Epic and part of that deal was what they call a two firm deal. So they guaranteed that I would make two albums But after that third album, Spacey and Shaken, they dropped me from my contract. But in doing so, they had to give me a really, really large amount of money. So this was in 99, Mm. early 99, I got dropped from that contract and had the sizable check. And that was the point that I really transitioned into my home studio and I invested a lot of that money into recording gear and set up so that I could start making records at home on my own. So that's really when I got deeper into engineering and producing and ended up producing a record for an artist called Jerry Joseph for a small label in Germany called Ulftone Records shortly after that. And that's when I really focused on producing and engineering.
1: Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you say, Send it to him over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. I'm curious, you know, how does one go from being at that position and making that jump? I guess the seed had been planted with the four track and I'm sure working with Brendan really educated you even more. So... Was this move out of survival or was it out of pure interest or
0: both?
2: Mostly pure interest. I was never really content on the road. I was always, always looking forward to getting back in the studio whenever I was on tour. Mm. And actually, while I was still on Epic, we were planning on making the album at my house. So Brendan had sort of signed off on the idea that we would spend my recording budget on gear that I would outfit my house with. And at that time we were looking at a 24 track tape machine and a console. But then when the, when the deal fell through, I ended up scaling back and ended up getting Tascam DA98 and DA38. Mm-hmm. Went for the digital multi-track vibe instead of the 24 track. So it was it was definitely where my heart was. I wanted to make records. I had friends who had always dug my cassette four track demos that's sort of how Jerry ended up enlisting me to produce his records. He had heard my home recordings and liked them and asked me to produce the record. And this is kind of an interesting story. I originally submitted a budget, and I should mention Russ Fowler, who was the engineer on on those records that I made with Brendan. He was also a, a mentor for me, taught me a lot over the years. I had submitted a budget to Ulftone, Jerry's label, with Russ as the engineer, and it, it wasn't a ton of money by my standards, you know, coming from a major label, I think I was asking for under $30,000 for the record. That was including, you know, Flying Musicians out, Flying the Engineer, Russ Fowler out. And they came back and said they had $2,000. <laughs> oh my God. So Wow. I was eager enough to want, to want to work. And I was a big enough fan of Jerry's music that I said, okay. And Jerry was like, well, why don't you engineer it? I love the way your stuff sounds. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that I wasn't really an engineer yet. So I just went ahead and did it, and it was total trial by fire. I spent that entire summer working on that record and learned a lot. That's when I first understood phase. I'd recorded some drums that were horribly out of phase and learned why that's a bad idea. So that's kind of when the producing thing started, and then I ended up working on my own music a lot. And eventually, over the course of a couple years, made my next album which was called Skywatching and produced that myself and actually enlisted that engineer Russ Fowler to come out and help with the basic tracks and the mixing on that album so I had some support from him on that and then I ended up getting pretty busy producing other artists and loved it I embraced the supportive role I really liked being in that in that position of helping someone else sort of realize their vision and I think having been an artist and been on the other side of the glass, I think made me an empathetic producer. I think I really, Mm -hmm. you know, worked well with the artists that I worked with. So I ended up staying really busy for several years in the producer's chair. And during that time, the Thorns kind of happened, which was that band that I mentioned earlier with Matthew Sweet and Sean Mullins. We signed with Aware Records, which was part of Columbia. And that was a whole experience unto itself. We co-wrote all the songs together, and it was a three-part harmony band. Mm-hmm. We got compared to CSN a lot. Yeah. And again, we worked with Brendan. We got Jim Keltner to play drums on the album. Uh, wow. Roy, Roy Batan played keyboards on it. It was just like a dream. We spent like a half a million dollars on that record.
1: Did you do it at your place?
2: No, this was done at Southern Tracks with Brendan O'Brien.
1: Oh, okay, okay.
2: And we used uh, Paul Buckmaster the legendary string arranger who worked on all those early Elton John records, did a string arrangement. We flew on a private jet from Atlanta to Nashville to record the 22-piece you know, <laughs> version of the Nashville Symphony. It was just crazy, big-budget Columbia records. Wow, half a overblown. million. I think so, yeah, in that neighborhood, for sure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, big record. And so at that time, I was doing that, but I was also at home doing these independent singer-songwriter records. So I was back and forth, just working like crazy. I was booked solid as a producer at home and then would fly out and do the recording and the writing and the touring with the Thorns. That was a better part of two years. Man, I really,
1: I love that you invested in your life, in buying your house and getting the recording gear because it's like, you know, record deals come and go. But when you buy these assets like this, they become a part of your your income for the future and, and keeping you stable, giving you a solid place to live. I think that's amazing that you yeah made those it, it worked out well.
2: You know, and the timing was great. We bought this house in 1996, so <laughs> wow. you know we got it for so cheap for what it's worth now. And was able when times were lean, was able to do a home equity loan at one point and you know put some of that money into the studio. I know you always like to ask about gear and finances, you know, for me, that was the one time that I used credit to buy gear to throw down for an HD system. Mm. And that was a big investment at the time. But that ended up working out well. I think there were probably cases where, you know, I got the opportunity to work on projects and could work on those projects at the level that I wanted to, as a result of having a full-on, full-blown rig at the time, as opposed to just getting like a 001 or something like a lot of people had at that time. I think it made the studio more appealing to people that it was fully pro.
1: Yeah, what console did you end up getting?
2: At first I had a Soundcraft Ghost and that served me well for a while, but I kind of hit the ceiling with that. And eventually I ended up getting a board. It's technically it's a Trident, but really it's a John Oram board. Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, John Oram and Malcolm Toft had a lawsuit over the patents from the original Trident boards from the seventies and when John Oram won the lawsuit. He built this board. It's called a Series 80, and it's got the mic pre's and the EQs from the Series 80 board, which was the board that came before the 80B. So really nice transformers in the mic pres and great EQs. It's like a Volvo. It's not a Rolls Royce or a Cadillac, but it's a good, solid pro board. It sounds great. So I made that leap in mid-2000s when I was really heavy into producing records and really felt felt the difference in that board. I could really you know, feel the, the low end extend more. Yeah. And I could really work the top end better. I wasn't struggling to get the top end like I would with the Ghost.
1: I'm curious about your perspective that you have being a musician coming into producing and engineering at a later time. Did you have any hesitancy moving from analog to digital? That's the first question. And the second question is, is, Do you feel that you came at it from a slightly different perspective because of your musicianship?
2: I think I just embraced digital. I think I did find it to be more of a struggle to kind of get the sound the way I wanted it. I think it's easier, it's obviously easier now that converters are so much better and we have so many different ways that we can play with the color of sounds in the digital domain now. In the early days, I can listen back to the records that I made on the I guess they were 16-bit, digital multi-tracks, and I can hear the limitation of digital there for sure in the sound of those records. But once I got my Pro Tools rig, I ended up in a place where I was happy with the sounds I was getting and happy with the results.
1: Do you feel that as a musician coming into it, do you think you came at audio from a different perspective?
2: I do. I think for me, engineering and producing, a lot of it comes down to arranging. If you have a good arrangement, the mix is much easier. If you've got a claustrophobic, overfilled arrangement, the mix is just a bear. So I think understanding how music is put together and understanding touch of instruments, I think I've worked with musicians a lot to get them to pull the best out of their instruments, I think, you know, especially with guitar. Mm-hmm. And I'm a I'm a drummer as well, so I could sort of work with a drummer and maybe encourage them to play lighter, so I could wind up the mic pre's a bit hotter and hit the compressor a little bit differently, and get that relationship of the the transient to the tone of the instrument, get that ratio so that you're getting a lot of tone. So yeah, I think you know my experience as a musician has really informed my my work as an engineer and a producer for sure. I think. It's also helpful working with singers. That's an area that I think I've definitely, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think it's an area that I excel in is really getting the best out of singers, working with them to find, find their voice and find, you know, a lot of times if somebody's been playing clubs a lot, they might be over-singing and really projecting
0: mm-hmm. in
2: a way that sort of when you get them to relax and sort of find, you know, I always use the analogy of gears you know, you could be in second gear with your foot on the gas all the way to the floor, or you can sort of ease it in down into fourth gear and relax into it. So I definitely think that my experience as a singer has helped me work with singers a lot.
1: Every time I've talked to you, you're, you just have this kind of mellow vibe to you. Do you think that that contributes to your success with working with singers? Because maybe you're not yelling at them, you're not getting aggro, you're just trying to seek out the best.
2: I would hope so. And I think, you know, having been on the other side, I know the vulnerability of being in that position of being in front of an expensive mic with good headphones on and really hearing yourself oftentimes so clearly that you hear every nuance. Mm-hmm. I know how that is. I think I have a lot of empathy for that situation mm. and definitely do try to you know, certainly not yell just definitely try to, you know, bring the best out of people and try to get people to feel comfortable. Yeah. It's 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 a it's a vulnerable position to be in when you're especially as a singer.
1: You mentioned arrangement and and how that really kind of shapes the mix. I, I have this one client who I've had for years who's um, like as a human being is just an amazing human being, great human. But this person tends to want to, and, and this is my analogy that I use with him. He tends to want to fill the living room with like several couches instead of a couch and a couple chairs and a table, kind of if mm-hmm. if you'll follow my analogy there. Yeah. And he's always like, oh, but I got this one more idea. And he's just trying to squeeze every idea into that one song. And I'm always the one like throwing up the yield sign, going, Oh, hold on a second. This is gonna be a disaster. In the mix, everything's going to be fighting. So, what would you recommend to others, such as myself, who are in that position of trying to herd the musicians to get them to not overindulge like that?
2: Well, first, I got to back up. And Rich Hincklin, who was the engineer that I worked with in the very early days, Mm -hmm. he wrote a song about me that he called Too Many Guitars. (laughs) Because when I was working with him, I always had another idea for another guitar part. And now I've got a 12-string, and now I've got a high-string guitar, and now I've got a capo on the fifth fret, and now I've got a finger-picking part. So that was my instinct as a young musician, was definitely Mm. to overdo it. And I think having done that enough, I learned my lesson, especially in the mix position, when you're trying to make sense of all that stuff. But as far as how to navigate the communication factor with an artist, for me, I think it begins with getting a great basic track on the floor and so the way i always like to make records is to cut everything live as much as possible and work at getting that to be as close to the finish line as possible and then oftentimes what i'll do is i'll work on sort of pre-mixing with what we've got you know off the floor before we start adding things Mm -hmm. and really try to get everything that's there to count and then try to find where the space is. So if you really spend the time kind of shaping things and getting your mix put together, and nowadays with computers, we can mix as we go and hit save as and come back to it later. So that's, that's one technique that I use these days, is really trying to make the mix happen with the basic track before piling a bunch of more stuff on there so that you get a sense of, of where there's space for things to go. It's been quite a while since I've worked with other artists, so I don't really have a lot of recollection to really speak specifically to your question. I think I've been working on my own music as of late, so I can probably comment more on that. And like on the, the recent stuff, like Fading Fast, that, that you were commenting on when we talked before we recorded, the producer and I, Paul Bryan, we really decided to keep it minimal and leave that space. So it's, you know, it's double-tracked guitars, double-tracked vocals— so, it, you know, it added this width and this dimension to the sounds that were there. And beyond the bass and the drums, all we added was one Wurlitzer piano. And it, it just ended up feeling complete with just that. You know, we didn't really need to bring a lot more to the party.
1: There's an art to it, to to figuring out, like, when is it too much? When is it yeah. when is it done? Why do we need more parts? And the more I go back and listen to to songs that I really enjoy, I find that There's a minimalism sometimes in those arrangements and the vocal, you know, carries most of it. And people aren't trying to fill every single sonic hole that there is.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, another aspect of that is to trust the song to do some work, to do a lot of work for you, like really give the song credit and let it speak for itself. Mm -hmm. I think there's a certain type of writing where if it's lyric driven, give the vocal space. That's another thing that I've done in recent times is I get a a keeper vocal really early. I think in the past, you can get caught up in just kind of having a guide vocal and kind of tuck it down in the mix a little bit, get excited about everything that you're adding to the mix. And then when you go to do your vocal, there's not space for the vocal to exist. And so on these tracks that I just recently worked on with Paul Bryan, I started with guitar and vocal. And got a keeper vocal, rather than just send him a guide vocal and then do a vocal later, I really, on on the song we were talking about, Fading Fast. Yeah. You know, I did a handful of takes and comp that vocal and, and got it sounding like a record before we even added the drums and the bass. And I've done that on other tracks and on previous projects as well, where I'd really, really get the vocal dialed in early. And that served me really well.
1: Tell me about working on commercials and movies, because you mentioned in the form I had you fill out that you have produced engineered and mixed national ads for Toyota, State Farm, and others. Can you tell me about that and what what got you
2: to that? That was something I was interested in around that time that I started producing records in the early 2000s. I was also just a huge fan of movies and movie music and Mm -hmm. was eager to try my hand at that threw my hat in the ring a couple times and started to spread the word with folks. And I just happened to bump into a fan at the airport one day when I was flying to L.A. to take meetings with music supervisors to not only talk to them about getting my songs placed in TV shows and movies, but I also wanted to let them know that I was eager to compose. And it turned out this this guy was an editor, a film editor, and was working on a documentary film and had been telling the director of the film that they should hire me to do the music. (laughs) And so I just lucked out and I went that evening and watched a rough cut of the first act of the movie, gave them my impressions of what I thought the music needed to be, and it really clicked and resonated with the director and they hired me, that was my first gig. And that would have been around 2001, I think. So I sort of fell into it that way. Shortly after that, I got another call to do a narrative feature film. So I kind of was off to the races pretty quickly with two feature films. Once I had those under my belt, I knew that the commercial world, as my friend explained it, he said, doing feature films is like drinking a pint of beer and doing a commercial is like drinking a shot. Everything is more condensed, Mm. much more intense, a lot more potent, and a lot more lucrative as well. So I knew that there was a lot of money in advertising. And so I put together a little composer reel, and shopped it around to all the ad agencies in Seattle and got nothing back. And I had imagined, you know, this was right after the Thorns. And the Thorns band, we did pretty well. We sold a couple of hundred thousand records and we played the Tonight Show and we got a ton of press. And I kind of thought that these ad agencies would be happy to have me after this run of success that I'd had. And I just got crickets back, nobody was interested. But then about a year later, I got an email from a guy who worked at the biggest agency in Seattle and was interested in having me do music for a public service announcement. And it was no money, but it was an opportunity for me to sort of show the agency what I was capable of. And I was really excited about it, and I agreed to do it. And as a thank you for doing that, they offered me two national T-Mobile commercials, wow. which was like a lot of money. And it was two commercials with eight seconds of music each. And that was sort of their, their way of saying thank you for doing this free PSA for them. And then the PSA went away. So basically, I got this thank you for the gig that I never even did. So that gig happened, and right after that, I had met a really amazing, talented guy named Sam Jones. Sam's known for making the Wilco documentary, if you saw that film.
1: I have seen that film.
2: And he's a really, really successful celebrity portrait photographer, and also directed commercials. And he had done a photo shoot for Entertainment Weekly with the Thorns. We had become fast friends. And he had asked if I had any interest in doing commercials, and I said yes. And it turned out that when he called for the first time, I had just finished the T-Mobile commercials, so he was able to show those to the producers of the spots that he was working on. So I sort of fell, fell into the business kind of near the top. I mean, not at the very, very top, mm-hmm. but I didn't have to sort of slug my way up through local carpet commercials to kind of get into the game my understanding
1: too, and tell me if I'm wrong, is purely based on the experience of, in fact, an old client of mine who got an Oreo cookie commercial, scored the music for that commercial. It was kind of a reinterpretation of the Oreo cookie theme song. So he didn't write the song, but he kind of reinterpreted the song. And that ran nationally and brought in high five figures immediately.
2: Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And it's even crazier if you get your vocals in there and if it's a Screen Actors Guild contract. Mm-hmm. And so my wife and I would sing on these commercials and you get paid as an actor if you do singing on these commercials. <laughs> and so, so that ended up being like crazy lucrative, like, you know, healthy six figures.
1: Wow. And, yeah. and two, two checks coming in, one for her, one yeah. for you.
2: Yeah. And if you double your vocals, you get paid double scale. <laughs> And then wow. every time the, every time they reuse the commercial, you get paid again. So there would be cases where there was one job where there were like 14 different spots as part of this whole campaign. And then all 14 would get changed to Spanish. And then you would get another round of checks for that. And then they would cut it down to a 15-second commercial version and you would get another round of checks for that. It was It's just crazy. I have a friend who uh, works in that world a lot, she called it her scholarship from God.
1: <laughs> so you're writing this music. You've got the studio to do it all. So you're doing everything on your own. So you're not, your layout is is minimal.
2: That's right. Yeah.
1: That's amazing. Yeah.
2: It was really amazing. And, you know, so at the same time, I would sort of jump back and forth between doing, you know, really low budget indie short film. And then I would jump over and do like a commercial for big money and then jump into producing a record for a singer-songwriter. So I was really busy during the mid-2000s through maybe around 2012 or so with that kind of stuff. And then eventually kind of burned out on it. It can be really stressful. That's that's what you get paid for is the stress. It's it's very high pressure, that kind of work. Hazard pay? Exactly, yeah. Huh.
1: Where did that lead you? I mean, it, and, and I have to ask, I mean, during all, all of this, I mean, I know you did the Thorns thing, but I mean, did you ever think, I'm going to put together another band and I'm going to go out and I'm going to try the solo thing all over again?
2: I continued to make records. So I, I made a record that came out in 2006 called Under the Waves, and that record actually was really successful for me. Financially, that was my most successful record because we had tons and tons of licensing on that record. That was the Toyota commercial. We had a song called Going Whichever Way the Wind Blows. It was licensed to a national Toyota commercial that aired during the NFC and AFC championships. Uh huh. And we had movies and TV shows, like a bunch of placements on that record. So that record did really well. I did a project with my wife called the Drogen Summer's Blend. That was a, a two-part harmony group that we did. We put out a, an EP in 2009. Mm -hmm. And then I did a soundtrack album in 2011 for a movie that I scored called A Lot Like You. And then we did another Blend EP in 2014. So, um, you know, among doing all these scoring gigs and producing other artists, I was always chipping away at my solo career and and at the George Summers Blend project. So I was always keeping my toe in the waters of writing songs and making my own records. But because the commercial world was so lucrative, I didn't do much to promote my solo work. I just kind of would lob it out there and, and work it to film and TV and keep my fingers crossed that the licenses kept coming in. And, you know, we continued to have good luck with that. There was a song from the Blend Project called Two of the Lucky Ones. that was really prominently featured in the movie Zombieland, which was like a, a massive hit movie. And that's become kind of a minor hit for us at streaming.
1: And I, st- I still have a coffee mug that you sent me.
2: Right. The, the Georgian Summers Blend coffee mug. Yep.
1: Yeah. And you had sent me coffee with that. I remember. That's right. I know you're a coffee the, fan. <laughs> well, so this is fascinating to me because you were diversifying in all ways, and really utilizing the talents you have, the gear you had. You and your wife were both involved, and oh man, I just—it seems like a great formula. But at some point, you develop chronic fatigue syndrome. And I'm kind of curious if you, if you don't mind talking a bit about that and how that started to invade.
2: Yeah, that, that started in 2015, and it continues to this day, actually. I'm much better than I was. But 2015, in September, I just hit a wall, and it was after my father had passed away, so I think that was a really stressful time. Mm-hmm. So I think that probably contributed to the situation. I ended up that September just bedbound, just completely leveled and just zero energy. I thought I had walking pneumonia. I went to see the doctor, and they weren't able to get to the bottom of what was going on. It wasn't until the following February that I was diagnosed with Epstein-Barr virus, which is the virus that causes mono. Mm -hmm. And we started treating that, and I didn't get better. And by that following August, so almost a year into it, I found a specialist who had diagnosed me with some other infections yeah, I won't go into all the details of the diagnoses, but it was sort of a perfect storm of, of multiple situations, each of which caused fatigue. So it was kind of the combination of them caused like really massive, severe fatigue. I tried for a while to kind of keep my career going and eventually just had to throw in the towel and basically went. By 2017, I went into semi-retirement and just completely pulled the plug on everything. I just couldn't, couldn't continue to work. And just, you know, in the last handful of months, I've got enough energy. I'm at at about 50% now Mm -hmm. and have enough energy that I'm able to get back to my career and was able to cut those tracks that I shared with you and have started this new Substack newsletter, which is a way to share demos and outtakes and work tapes and stories from the road with my fan base. So I'm just now getting back to work. And it it feels amazing. I'm just super grateful for the energy I do have now after being on the sidelines.
1: In a nutshell, could you kind of, for the uneducated about chronic fatigue, could you lay it out? Like, what what is it?
2: It's a mystery ailment most of the time. Most of the people who suffer from chronic fatigue, it's really difficult to get to the root cause of what's causing it. And oftentimes the root causes are very difficult to treat Hmm. and either take a long time or take forever. I have a friend who's had chronic fatigue for 30 years. So it's it's very mysterious. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about it other than it's, it's very tricky to diagnose and very tricky to treat.
1: And very debilitating, it sounds like.
2: For me, I'm lucky that all I deal with is fatigue. Some people get fibromyalgia where they also have pain associated with it.
1: Oh yeah, I've heard of that.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I'm, I'm fortunate that all I have is fatigue. And it's, it's different than being tired. It's, it feels a little bit like if you imagine being jet lagged and then doing like a 14-hour drive. And imagine how you would feel after that. You kind of feel like that all the time. You wow. wake up in the morning and you, you don't feel refreshed at all. And, and, it's, and it's weighty and it's, very, it's a very heavy fatigue. It's different than just being tired.
1: And no amount of coffee or exercise makes it go away, does it?
2: No. No, actually, exercise is one of the treatments that is supposed to help. So it's sort of counterintuitive. Getting a little bit of cardio in is a good idea and does help. But yeah, it's been quite a journey. And fortunately, I'm a glass half full type person. It could be a lot worse. I have friends with health situations that are much more dire than mine. And I'm in a position where I've got royalties coming in and we're able to survive. So I ain't complaining.
1: It's interesting because. I doubt you planned for it this way, but all the heavy lifting that you did leading up to this set you up to have these royalties coming in. And and I'm sure you saved a bit. And had you done nothing, had you kind of coasted when not done the commercials and the movies and all that, you'd probably financially be in a much more challenging situation.
2: Yeah, and and I know you always like to ask about finances and stuff. I'm definitely a saver, so that, that was a saving grace, for, for sure.
1: That's great. Yeah. So you're finding now that you're operating at 50%, and you sent me some new music, which I think is fantastic. In spite of the fatigue, does it motivate you to fight back against that fatigue and just push on through to make some
2: music? I've always... Through, through all of it, I continued to work on music one way or the other. So songwriting was the one thing that I stuck with. Mm. And it was interesting how when the fatigue was at its worst, it really forces you to prioritize. You really have to ask yourself, OK, if I can do one thing today, what's that going to be? And for me, that was songwriting. Mm. So I continued to work on songwriting throughout the whole the whole journey and just couldn't do any recording getting in the studio was beyond what i could accomplish so over the course of those heavy fatigue years i amassed a pile of songs that i'm really excited about and now i'm at the point where with the help of a co-producer i'm able to get these songs across the finish line so i can work up here and cut a basic track to like a little beat box and get my vocal and a guitar down and then ship it off to la and let my team down there flesh it out and i kind of work long distance with them. And it's, it's worked out really well. And we're going to continue to kind of do that throughout the rest of the year. And the idea is to put out a series of singles that will ultimately lead up to a full album.
1: It's pretty amazing. And I'm sure it's, it's pretty frustrating to deal with. I assume that the mind and the desire is, is, is fully there and ready to work, but the body just doesn't always feel up to it.
2: Yeah. You know, the way I describe it, if you've ever had the dream where you're trying to run, but you can't run... That's kind of what it feels like. And for me, I have a very busy brain and I'm very passionate about what I do. So during the heavy fatigue years, it was immensely frustrating because I'd have all this time to lay in bed or lay in the bathtub and sort of plot and scheme and think about all the things that I want to do, but then I wouldn't have the energy to act on any of it. So it really was, there were periods of total frustration and despair. Mm Mm-hmm. I won't lie, but I ultimately just focused on, you know, I'm big into meditation. I meditate two hours a day and would spend a lot of time with uh, what they call a gratitude practice. Mm -hmm. So I think that really helped me not sort of fall too deep into the pits of despair. And the periods of time where I did get fully depressed, they didn't last too long. And I'm actually quite surprised that I wasn't depressed more of the time than I was.
1: The the music you sent me is, that was a couple singles. Is the idea to put out a full album or, or just to put out some singles?
2: Yeah, so the plan is to put out a series of singles. I'm going to okay. put out one every couple months. Okay. And then once I have 10 or 12, I'll slap those all onto a vinyl album and put out a proper album at that point. Okay. But I didn't want to wait. It's going to take so long to make this record because of the pace that I have to work at with yeah. my fatigue. I didn't want to wait to share the music until it was all done. I wanted to kind of put out one song at a time. So the first of those was Fading Fast, and that came out on February 3rd. So that's available everywhere now. And then the next one will come out in a couple months. So I'll put a link
1: in the show notes to those tunes. Tell me about Substack. That's a new thing in my vocabulary.
2: Substack is an online publishing platform. I think the best way to describe it is it's kind of like a website a blog, and a newsletter all rolled up into one. So they call themselves a newsletter platform. So basically, when you sign up for it, you're going to get whatever I post automatically in your email inbox. But it also lives online in what looks like a blog or a website. So people can sign up. And it's really geared mostly towards writers. And so there's a lot of really famous journalists on there. Mm-hmm sharing their writing, and people can subscribe for free, but there's also a paywall element to it. So what a lot of people do on there is they'll have some articles or some posts for free and then others behind a paywall. What I've decided to do is make everything that I post for free, but paid subscribers get early access to the new music that I'm putting out, and they get access to a link where they can download all the music that I'm sharing, and some of that is in high-res audio. So the super fans who really want to collect it, because if you go to Substack, you can only stream the music, you can't download it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so for the people who want to collect it, then if they pay for a subscription, they can go download the music as well. And so on there, you can share audio and video and writing and pictures. It's a really elegant, well-designed platform, and they are tailoring it now towards musicians there's a handful of musicians now that have substack newsletters and i'm loving it i just had launch week on the 16th of uh, january I, I i launched it and did a post every day that week and from now on i'm posting about once a week or every 10 days and i'm sharing everything from like my iphone work tapes of songwriting and like a blog post talking about the writing process I'm sharing uh, early demos of songs that my fans would know from the records. I'm sharing demos of outtakes of songs that didn't make it on the records. I'm sharing stories from the road. On my launch week, I wrote a story about the time that I was on a promo tour in Europe and was duped into playing the opening of a fast food chicken restaurant in Graz, Austria. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's a really cool platform. I'm really digging it. The folks that have signed up for it are really responding positively. You know, I've been gone for a long time, so the super fans that are out there who really love my music have been eager for me to share stuff. So it's it's been a really great opportunity to get my music and stories and demos back out there.
1: For the listeners then in the show notes will be a load of things, including Pete's website, the Substack information, everything we've talked about, we'll make sure is there for you so you can check it out. I'm super glad you decided to come on the show, Pete, because uh, I've, I've enjoyed uh, our, our few brief chats that we've had over the last few years, and uh, I'm really glad to have you as a guest.
2: Likewise. I'm happy to be here. I'm a huge fan of the show. I listen every Monday. It's like clockwork. Wow. Love it.
1: Well, thank you so much. Great, great to chat with you, and thanks again. Thank you. Pete Droge here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I know I sound like a broken record, but remember, if you really want to help this show out, the best thing you could do is go over to your podcast aggregator, whether that's Apple Music or whatever you're listening on. Leave a five-star review, and if there's an opportunity to write something nice, that would be a bonus, and i really appreciate it. But that is all for me today. I do want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. You know you can always email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com, and of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware,